0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running
2: conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
0: Uh, Yes, indeed. And he's here to say good afternoon on this Tuesday, the 28th of July, just five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. And how in the world are you? Great to have you with us for Another edition of Lifeline. We're here to talk about the issues, their impact on your life. And we'll spend a pretty good solid hour today with our first special guest as we dive into some critical issues that, um, you know, ultimately, as we kind of look at it from afar, watching it over a television screen or reading stories on the Internet, it seems to be distant and far away and disconnected. Um, And yet the implications of what it could mean in this nation long term can be extremely frightening. And sadly, some of the genesis of this, at least in terms of Americans seemingly tolerating some of what we see going on today, goes back to, I think, an insatiable sense of wanting to be satisfied from a standpoint of security. But there are sacrifices that have to be made if you're going to feel safe and comfy and warm in your own home, in your own community. And in doing so, oftentimes what ends up being sacrificed is your freedom. Maybe, at least in recent memory, the biggest decline into this sort of thinking began in the days and weeks immediately following the attack on the Pentagon, New York City, in september of 2001 and that underlying sense that americans sensibilities and safety and security had been threatened for the first time on our own shores largely since um, certainly the attack on pearl harbor in december of 41 and um, and so we were willing to kind of make sacrifices in order to gain security Well, we've begun now to understand that that can be a very dangerous, slippery slope, although I might quickly add that, as I'm sure our guest will explain tonight, the the genesis of this slow descent into um, what can be a very dangerous arena even goes back prior to certainly the events of September the 11th. Bob Zadek joins us. He is founder of Lenders.com, host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country, The Bob Zadek Show, heard locally here in the greater San Francisco Bay Area every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. And um, he's got lots of resources available at his website as well that we'll tell you about a little bit later on in the program. Meanwhile, Robert, as always, a privilege and an education to have you join us. Thank you kindly, Craig. It's always a
2: pleasure to join you.
0: Well, as we all know, uh, A.G. William Barr has uh, been testifying today before the House, for the first time, in fact, in a year and a half since uh, he took over as America's top cop. Democrats have grilled him for five hours on a long list of controversies and repeated interventions in matters of interest to the president. But most notably, there was protracted questioning by lawmakers over the use of federal law enforcement in cities across the country, including most recently Portland and Washington, D.C. And I know that there are growing numbers of Americans that feel very, how should I say this, disquieted by the notion that there appear to be troops on the streets of America not dealing with some foreign invasion force, but rather dealing with our own citizens and of course this raises quite a number of constitutional questions, not only in terms of uh, Tenth Amendment and states' rights, but even to um, laws that were passed by Congress in the 1800s, um, in some sense, giving control or the ability of the President to use federal forces in the case of some, um, you know, major insurrection uh, to quiet that down, along with some limitations on that. So, let's some spend some time talking about the constitutionality of this all. I know that you have discuss this topic in depth on your program recently. First, let's just begin with kind of the the, the broader sense in terms of the division of powers between the federal and the state. What should be the appropriate constitutional role of the federal government when it comes to dealing with cases of crime
2: or violence or violent protests on the streets of America? That's a perfect place to start, Craig. Thank you very much for that question. we start with, uh, well, the starting point is the original formula for government as set forth in the Constitution. And in the Constitution, the states had, under the Constitution and the colonies had, before there was a Constitution, under both the Articles of Confederation and under the way they operated under the crown before the American Revolution local police power and police power doesn't mean just cops it certainly means cops but the phrase police power is a has a very definite meaning in political science in constitutional studies and the police power means the whole range of powers that government has powers and responsibilities to look after the health welfare and safety of citizens. And that has always felt to be, at least in our country, that power and that responsibility must be local because only local governments understand the mores and the needs of citizens to be protected. A a government which is distant just is unconnected to the citizens. So that has been, that was the founding principle uh, there's nothing um, except for uh, the, the barest general general statement in the constitution uh, there's a phrase general welfare which is not which is not understood to be the creation of any special powers so basically uh, the police power is not mentioned at all the health welfare and safety of citizens except from foreign invasion is not mentioned in the Constitution but it is mentioned indirectly in the tenth Amendment The 10th Amendment to the Bill of Rights basically says, and I'll just paraphrase, that all powers not specifically given to the federal government are reserved to the states and to the people, and to the people. And uh, that's the way our country was formed, and there was no federal police force there was no concept of a federal police force there wasn't even a concept for a national for, for a standing army uh, the founders deplored even the concept of standing army but that of course changed all the time but certainly no federal police force and for the first hundred years of our country we had no federal police force indeed there wasn't even any federal crimes to speak of and the Constitution only provided for three, three federal crimes in the, whole, in the Constitution. Now, Craig, in order to gain my undying respect, if we can just have a little side journey, show off and name the three and only three federal crimes set forth in the Constitution, and you'll probably get two right and not think of the third. Alright, let's see here All right, I, one, one I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be
0: going out on a limb here, Robert I'm going to say one of them must be treason Perfect,
2: good for you Two others Counterfeiting Okay, that yep, that makes sense you. Yep, counterfeiting one, would make sense We could be on till Christmas Eve and you wouldn't get it It's piracy Okay. Not ah. A lot of piracy okay. going on, except except in the Somali coast. But so, but those are the three and only three federal crimes. Now there are about fifty uh, three thousand, fifty three hundred clear federal crime and tens of thousands more buried in regulations. So we have a federal police. We have a federal criminal statutory regime now, which itself, one could argue, is kind of, if not unconstitutional. It's against the spirit of the founding uh, principles of our country. Okay, so and let me ask you, a, a, let me
0: ask you a question, Robert, that that goes to the heart of that very statement, and and that is this: uh, America is is unique compared to certainly not all, but a good percentage of nations around the world. And I've been very privileged to visit, I don't know, probably thirty, thirty-five countries outside of America, and uh, you see this with great. Um, uh, frequency where the the federal enforcement individuals are, in fact, military. Uh, if anybody listening has ever been to Israel, for example, when you arrive and uh, descend the, the uh, stairs there and walk onto the tarmac in Tel Aviv, you are greeted by military. That's true for a lot of countries. The United States, though, has been distinct that way. Unless you live in a military town where there's a base... It is rare to ever encounter armed military individuals that are serving either in, you know, Air Force, Marines, Navy, Army, Coast Guard, hardly anywhere in our nation. And I have to wonder how much of that, and that very, what would appear to be distinct division between the military and domestic law enforcement. Has that largely been um, intentional, if not within the confines of the letter of the law, but to the spirit of the law, from the viewpoint of our founding fathers?
2: Well, they just didn't think that the federal government could operate a police force from so far away, and it was so clear to the founders and to the states that the responsibility for health, welfare, and safety, other than safety as against a foreign invasion, safety, domestic safety, is just plain for province of the states, the counties, and the cities. That's just a given. And that is still true today. And we have no, per se, federal cops, at least we didn't think we did, and that's just fine. Uh, Criminal law should be local, Because something that the citizens of Wyoming might not think is a crime, the citizens of uh, Boston, Massachusetts might think to be a crime, because it's different to live in Boston than in Wyoming, and local crime ought to reflect reflect the culture and the customs of the community rather than just something imposed from afar. And that kind of works fine. People, without even knowing... Uh, that that's going on, they generally are comfortable with that. And uh, it's very hard to import criminal law from one area to another, where, as I said, the customs and the lifestyle and the uh, density is so different. So that's where we start.
0: Then the first Bob Zodick is with us today. We're spending some time talking about uh, not just the uh, testimony on Capitol Hill today by Attorney General William Barr in relationship to uh, the presence of uh, federal law enforcement officials that uh, ironically to this day seem to largely be, um, if not outright unidentified, at least under-identified, and, and whether or not this puts us into a precarious place. Whether or not this is more of a slippery slope vis-a-vis, uh, for example, the use of Obama um, using federal enforcement in dealing with uh, Cliven Bundy in Nevada, or before that, Clinton and Janet Reno against the Branch Davidians in Wago, Texas. We're going to spend some more time talking about this topic. With us today is best-selling author, nationally syndicated talk show host, Bob Zodek, host of The Bob Zodek Show, heard every weekend, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m., right here in the San Francisco Bay Area, at 860 a.m., The Answer. And if you've got friends outside of the area and want to... Tune him into uh, Bob's program. You can get more information, including a complete list of affiliates, other resources as well by going to his website at BobZadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We'll take a brief time out. When When we come back to more of our conversation, we'll dive into some of the legal basis that would even exist for allowing deploying federal troops to American cities. That is our conversation with Bob Zadek continues. Right now, though, we're going to have a conversation with the folks over at the KFAX Traffic Center at 519. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation today with best-selling author and syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek, taking a look at the constitutional questions that are swirling around the use of federal military personnel or federal law enforcement officials, largely not clearly identified in places like Portland, Oregon, and we've seen them talked about in Colorado and in uh, certainly in Seattle and, and potentially in other places across the nation, and whether or not there are certain potential constitutional liabilities if in- involving all of this. Now, there are times, certainly, when there may be uh, some extreme necessity for troops to be sent out, for federal law enforcement to get engaged. The question is, when exactly is that? What's the criteria constitutionally before that's triggered? Bob Zadek, constitutional expert, gives us some insights. And I know certainly going back to the the, the 1800s, uh, there was passage early on in 1807 of something called the Insurrection Act that must have indicated at least to lawmakers at the time that there could be the possibility of some sort of a problem, and if so, the necessity to bring in federal troops to address it um, they wanted to make a provision for, although I understand by um, the, the close of that century they had second thoughts, or at least put further restrictions on that. Give us some insights, Bob, if you would, into the legal basis for f- sending federal troops to any of these protests.
2: Well, you're quite right. Um, you nailed it. Uh, the Insurrection Act was passed in 1807. 1807, of course, our country was only a couple of decades old. It was feeling vulnerable and fragile. There was, in a free society, there are always elements that are unhappy, and there was a fear that there could be an insurrection that uh, local governments couldn't handle. After all, local governments did have militias, but or states did, but... Uh, they weren't all that effective, although they were reasonably effective. So Congress, feeling insecure, uh, passed the Insurrection Act, which um, empowered, which gave the president the power to send U.S. military and National Guard. So military. There's no police. Remember, the federal government has no police. They can send the military. That's a big deal. Uh, to uh, suppress an insurrection... But the president has to first uh, declare a proclamation that there's an insurrection and order insurgents to disperse. And that has rarely, I can't recall any instance when that actually happened. So it's sitting on the books, but it never was really invoked because there weren't any insurrections. And fast forward now, so we still have no federal law enforcement or soldiers uh, going to the states. Fast forward 1878, uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, Congress, being unhappy with sending in military to act as cops, passed the Posse Comatox Act, which, in effect, prevented the government from using military to enforce civil law to and criminal law. So the military was prohibited. To this day, from being cops. Now that's a kind of weird grade. We have the military enforcing drug laws. We have the military uh, enforcing all kinds of criminal laws around the country, in kind of uh, thumbing their nose at the Posse Comitatus Act of 1878. But uh, the uh, but but so be it. And uh, so the military just has not been used very much to enforce criminal law, a law within the domestic law of the United States. Now we have, as we know, whatever time there's a crisis, we have a, a ratchet which only goes one way. Every time there's a crisis in our country, uh, liberty recedes and government grows. And sure enough, as sure as night follows day, in the aftermath of the 9-11 uh, event, uh, Congress passes something called the Homeland Security Act. They always have these very calming names. Homeland Security Act. And the Homeland Security Act was really important. Now, Congress just did what George Bush said, told him to do. There wasn't any thought given to it. And here we get to a, a straight line to Portland. The Homeland Security Act of 2002 empowers uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security to use federal agents, federal agents to deploy to protect the buildings, grounds, and property that are owned by the federal government. Here we have it, the nose under the tent. So now we have the perfect pretense. Federal, federal law enforcement under the control of Homeland Security, not the military, but the closest we have right now to federal cops. Homeland Security can send in federal troops to protect the buildings. And it's lawful, because Congress sheep that they are, uh, passed the Homeland Security Act and created this power. So now we have the Secretary of Homeland Security can use all of the, shall I call them, troops under their control to go in and protect localities. You may recall right now that The pretense, the some would say phony pretense, by which President Trump sent in Homeland Security, uh, Customs and Border Enforcement, DEA, uh, all the federal quasi-military. He sent them into Portland under the political and legal cover of protecting federal buildings. And that's just plain Craig phony. Now, why do I say that? Because there is and has been for quite some time a federal agency, uh, the, uh, uh, I forgot the exact name, but it's the Protective Service Administration, whose task it is, what? To protect federal buildings. So there's an existing, not paramilitary, existing federal agency whose job it is to protect the buildings. So Trump could have... As a mainstream act of presidential authority, sent in the Protective Service Administration to protect the buildings, not to pull people off the street, not to drive around and unlock cars, to do whatever is necessary to protect the buildings, and not enrage the protesters. So that's the history of how we now have, if we do have, uh, federal. Law enforcement, even though there's not supposed to be any such thing, but we have federal law enforcement who are allegedly there to protect the buildings, but are really, if you can believe, the case of Mr. Pettibone and others who claim to have been picked up off the streets and unmarked federal law enforcement cars and arrested without any of their Fourth Amendment protections. And that's the situation today. So, and, uh, of course, what's
0: well, challenging about this, Robert, is the fact that it that it's derailed the important part of the dialogue. And by that I mean instead of staying focused on issues of the relationship between police departments, the local community, um, addressing the examples we've seen of racial uh, behavior by police departments, bringing about justice and, and fairness under the law, so much of that, sadly, that, that national dialogue that we started in the day following George Floyd's death has now kind of been derailed now I, I want to take a time out we're going to get an update on traffic and come back with more of the, the, the dialogue because I, I want to also zoom in on a question and that is the, the manner in which there was some disingenuousness in this in terms of the complaining that's now being made by the left um, and, and the charges leveled against the administration um, when in fact there was often not much said at all when Obama did it Back in Nevada, a decade ago, or when two decades prior to that, Bill Clinton, along with the support of then Attorney General Janet Reno, did it to the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. Bob Zadek is with us today. He is a best-selling author, nationally syndicated talk show host. His program, The Bob Zadek Show, lively, engaging, dealing with these kinds of very issues that go to the heart of not just constitutional questions, but who we are as a people and a nation. Break It Down and Talks to All the Experts. Insightful conversation every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. The Bob Zadek Show, heard locally on 860 AM, The Answer. Information available, including podcasts and other resources, along with Bob's books, online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. Dot com. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, our dialogue over the history of this in recent times continues. Right now, though, oh look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Bob Zadek is with us. We are talking about some of the constitutional questions that surround the use of federal law enforcement officials, be it military or other uh, federal officials, in um, policing of streets in places like Portland, Oregon just what the constitutional um, potential risks are from something like that. And, And to be sure, while it might seem as something new, if you haven't been around for a while, or you've been very much focused on the enormity of the protests in Portland, Oregon, this is far from the first time that a president has used potentially extra constitutional authority and Bob, I mentioned before the break about two examples, one in the case of Barack Obama um, bringing in federal law enforcement officials dealing with the um, the occupation of lands in Nevada by Cleveland Bundy, and then years before that, of course, uh, the now infamous Branch Davidian event at Waco, Texas, when Bill Clinton and Janet Reno brought out federal officials as well are, are these all examples in your mind of just sort of the the slippery slope and and if so does it suggest without some sort of reversal or um, significant action either by you know the, the other two branches of government or, or or by the people that we run the risk of seeing a continued erosion of our rights and freedoms all in the name of safety and security
2: well you may be right let's remember uh, Benjamin Franklin's, um, or, or sorry, James Madison's warning, that, uh, or Jefferson, I believe, that the natural order of things is for government to grow and liberty to recede. That's natural, which means unless us citizens take unusual steps and don't just sit back like sheep, but, but at the ballot box, vote for those people who respect liberty, we will see, as sure as night follows day, that trend continuing. Now, as to the Branch Davidians, if you recall, uh, the primary federal agency involved in the Branch Davidians was ATF, um, which is charged with alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Their, their mission has expanded. Uh, now, we can argue Should alcohol be regulated nationally? I say, of course not. What should be more local than the regulation of alcohol? It should be up to a community to decide how to deal with alcohol. But we have federal law. Um, We all remember prohibition. So we have federal alcohol and tobacco. Should tobacco be national? Of course not. There should be no national law on alcohol, on tobacco whatsoever, in my opinion. But we have one. So therefore, you have to have an agency to enforce it. So you create a statute that, then you create men with guns to enforce the statute, equals Branch Davidian. That was the Branch Davidian. As to uh, in rural Washington state, the other case uh, you referred to, if you remember, the issue there was a trespass on federal land. Uh, The claim was that the federal government took away free grazing rights from ranchers. The ranchers were enjoying free rights to graze, they always had that right, whether they should have something for free is a different conversation, but they were deprived it, and they got angry, they wanted their free stuff back, and they trespassed, so they were on federal land, so it's appropriate for federal law enforcement to go and enforce federal law. So they aren't quite the same as Portland or Seattle, because the big difference is that the governors in in Washington and Oregon, did not want the federal law enforcement there. They, they weren't forceful in telling them to leave, but they expressed displeasure. So the headlines about Portland and Washington state are the federal law enforcement was imposed on local government against the will of local government, which creates this really unpleasant clash between two governments. Uh, state on the one hand and federal on the other, which just cannot end well for either party. So that's what makes Portland and Washington State different. What about the president's
0: argument that he is compelled to do something because local law enforcement officials either can't or won't deal with? The protests. Does that argument hold any water? And and what of the notion that I, I believe in both cases in Washington and in Oregon states, like anywhere else in the country, should local law enforcement officials feel overwhelmed um, as much as the president can deploy the national guard? So too can a governor. Can they not?
2: Uh, well, you yes, ask a bunch of questions all rolled up into one. First of all, you you ask whether because. Uh, the, the local law enforcement isn't doing a good enough job, I would say by whose standard, number one number two, to give your question back to you in a different context what if the streets in your town are really dirty and sanitation is just doing a really crummy job because I'm making up a hypothetical it's a corrupt group and there's a lot of bribery and laziness and strong unions, whatever there is but the streets are filthy is that grounds for the feds to come in and send in troops? And if not, what's different? Uh, well, you say, well, one's a riot. But, but where is that difference written down somewhere? It's simply the incompetence of local government to fulfill their mission. Well, the remedy for that, Craig, is at the ballot box. And that's what happens. When local uh, history is clear, uh, other than when you have one-party governance, but when the party in power doesn't do a good job on their mission locally. They get voted out. Giuliani came in as a Republican, dem- Republican mayor in New York City. Who would have imagined that? But he came in, not because of, although he was a hero uh, at the time, he had put the mob uh, in jail, but he came in because the Democrats in one party rule in New York City were just grossly incompetent, and they got voted out. So we know how to fix Bad government locally, whether it's dirty streets, or too much crime, or graffiti, or cars being broken into, you fix it at the ballot box. That's the system. Now, it's not going to be fast, but that's the system, and it's peaceful. And it doesn't involve conflict between two different branches of government. So so I answer your question by saying, no, I don't think local violence in and of itself... Is at all grounds to send in unwelcomed and uninvited federal help. Now, if the city or the state is overwhelmed and they ask for federal help, well, they have the National Guard, the president can nationalize, and they have other federal resources. All of that works quite peaceably. They say, we need some help, we are a country, uh, sister states help each other, the federal government will help the states. Uh, so long as they can do so lawfully and the system takes care of itself it's where local government says get out of here and government and the federal government says we're, we're sticking it to you we're coming in whether you like it or not that's where things get quite unpleasant
0: well and certainly um... the time will continue to uh, to tell how all of this plays out in the coming days and weeks and it'll be very interesting to see Um, not only whether or not there's a reaction by congress Uh, toward all of this at the national level, but whether or not there are ultimately some constitutional challenges that make their way to the Supreme Court. In any event, it it continues to be an issue that we need to watch very carefully, and boy, some remedial education on the intent of the Founding Fathers and the design of our Constitutional Republic uh, certainly is very much in order here for a cast of characters at multiple levels. Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show. Information available again on his program here locally, which airs Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer, you can check it out on bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. He's got podcasts, other resources, along with, of course, his books that can be ordered online, and we invite you to tune in Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, The Bob Zadek Show. Bob, as always, we appreciate the time. 548, let's get a look at traffic for you right now. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And uh, the topic of the Constitution uh, continues to be a lingering one on our program tonight as we pivot to uh, more COVID-19 news in relationship to uh, orders not just in the state of California that severely limit the ability of churches to gather and, and worship, and then to in our neighboring state of Nevada. You might have heard word that over the weekend this past Sunday, Grace Community Church, the home of our dear friend Dr. John MacArthur, gathered and they sang hymns and had church Sunday, defying California regulations that aim to limit the spread of COVID-19. But just how practical is that attempt at limiting the spread, particularly from the standpoint where, according to the endorsement now by the Supreme Court, apparently in a state, for example, like Nevada, entertainment, is more important than religion let's get some insights now by constitutional lawyer the founder and president of the pacific justice institute brad dacus and, and brad I, I i guess i, I I hesitate to apologize to listeners and say uh, we're we're kind of a one-trick pony of late, but this is continuing to be such a critically important, compelling topic, and it just doesn't apparently seem to be any relief or end in sight in terms of bringing about fairness or parity. Uh, Let me start with having you um, share your thoughts on the um, decision handed down by the High Court uh, just on Friday, a request from Calvary Chapel of Dayton Valley in Nevada. That had asked the, um, the Supreme Court to block enforcement of Nevada Governor Steve Soslek's order that limits religious gatherings to fifty worshipers regardless of the size of the building now in in making this decision the the court certainly on a five to four decision as we could have guessed those coming down in in favor of the church, including Justice Thomas Alito Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh but I, I have to wonder. What's the reasoning here? If this was a uniformly applied regulation, all in the spirit of protecting health, uh, maybe the medicine would go down a little bit easier. But the fact that you can go to a Nevada casino without limitation whatsoever, but you can't go to church on Sunday, seems to be very troubling.
1: It, it is very troubling, and it doesn't take a, an expert in constitutional law to see it on space for for what it is, which is uh, blatant uh, discriminatory. Uh, bias uh, in that court uh, against uh, religious institutions. It was a five to four decision. So Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, he switched to the other side and and voted this way. I do want to qualify this a little bit in a positive way, uh, and that is uh, the the this decision was actually it was an attempt to get a decision, injunctive a relief ahead of the Ninth Circuit. Usually, things first go to the Ninth Circuit. They decided and then it goes to the Supreme Court. Uh, but uh, in this case, the case went, this was a pe- petition appealed directly to the Supreme Court. Usually you can only prevail on that scenario unless you sh- show gross uh, negligence by the the, the the prior court decision in federal court. And so the Supreme Court is a little uh, less likely to uh, rule in your favor if they know that it hasn't first gone through the Ninth Circuit. Even still, it was still a close five to four. It's now going to be sent back down to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit will then uh, deliberate, and then, and then it will probably go back up to the Supreme Court, at which time I think Roberts might, along possibly with, with uh, Breyer and uh, Cayman, might, uh, might, might switch over and be a seven to two. But it was still disturbing because the facts, though, and I agree with the, the other four judges, the facts were so blatantly discriminatory. I mean, you can have a, a large congregation, you know, and have only 50 people allowed, but yet Caesar's palace is allowed to have thousands coughing, bumping into each other, passing each other, while in the in the church they're sitting distanced from each other with masks. Uh, it is, it's, it's very discriminatory, and I do think the Supreme Court should have granted that uh, decision in favor of the church, because this was a, clearly a gross... Um, discrepancy by the lower court
0: that now, now at least in the case of of nevada and it certainly is is distinct from our own here in california but at least in the case of Nevada, we're, we're, we're all aware of the fact that the, the number one thing that drives the economy in that state is gambling. Whether it be Reno or, or uh, Tahoe or Las Vegas, it's all gambling. And <laughs> is it perhaps an inadvertent show of his hand that the governor would say it's okay for gambling casinos to be open, but churches are limited to only 50 people? When, let's see, it would be the gambling houses that are putting money into the state coffers, but the churches don't?
1: Exactly. I, I think that is exactly what it boils down to. Uh, in addition to lack of appreciation and respect for religious freedom, uh, there was definitely some monetary financial incentive uh, for this particular governor uh, to uh, to treat churches the way he did and, 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 and then to treat uh, the casinos uh, in such a favorable way because that is a lot of their economy. But it, it's still it's still unjustified to contend that you can uh allow thousands of people to come and go in and you know passing each other coughing each other do whatever all throughout a casino spreading uh germs and everything else viruses and then not allow churches in an orderly manner to have a church service so this is uh we're watching this very closely and uh Pacific Justice Institute uh we have an attorney in a full-time office there in uh Nevada and uh, near the state capital uh, of Carson City and we're uh working with the churches uh, as we speak uh, to, to deal with this and and uh, being able to uh, to get around in every in every way possible
0: now i make reference to uh and i'll, I'll be just blatant about this my, my favorite teacher here on kfax and has been for many many years dear friend john MacArthur, of course there at grace community church on sunday they had services is there any risk of a uh, Apparel. And if so, what would that look like? I mean, what does the governor come in and do? I mean, do you padlock the door of a church? Uh, what kind of risk and what kind of guidelines should churches be using so that they can continue to to meet the needs of their congregants, meet the spiritual needs of their church, uh, while at the same token protecting those very same people?
1: Yeah, we, we have Pacific Justice, and actually Emily Minna, the attorney in, in Nevada, is one of help put this together, put together a, a, a set of standards and guidelines for churches to utilize, how they can legally and safely reopen uh, responsibly, and so that even if they are attacked and they have 51 or more pe- people in their church service, if they carry out what we prescribed on our website, uh, they'll have a very strong uh, case uh, to uh, to be able to de- defend themselves, and uh, we, of course, will defend any church without charge that is in any way attacked uh, for exercising their first to memorize to be able to come together and worship the Lord Jesus Christ or or practice whatever faith they have.
0: Information available on the website, as we've been mentioning, uh, at pji.org, and it will be clear when they get there as to where to go?
1: Uh, oh, yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's very clear, and uh, it's right there. It's, it's a rotating banner, and they'll, they'll find it. It'll, it'll pop up, and uh, they should definitely take advantage of it. It's uh, it's, 96, it's a 96-point checklist on how churches can legally and safely reopen.
0: All right, again, that information available to you without cost at pji.org. Think Pacific Justice Institute, pji.org. Our right, thanks to Brad Dake, as founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, for that update. Six o'clock from KFAX, we're going to get you a look at some headline news, but first, let's start with a look at traffic.